0: Hey everybody, welcome in to 10 Questions with Tim. This is our third time doing it, and I love this segment on the channel. YouTube.com slash Live. Welcome in, join the chat, grab some coffee. I have some coffee right here with me. Like, subscribe, ring that bell. You know the deal. I don't wanna waste any time. Let's get right into your questions. Okay, so your questions came in fast and furious, especially uh, these last couple of uh, moments. We had like three questions come in about an hour ago. Uh, Thank you for subscribing to the channel and thank you for following all the notifications as well. Um, So get your questions in there early because it loads up quickly. Now we have 13 questions. I'm going to try my best to get through all 10 that came in originally. And if there's time, we will go to a bonus question. So. Let's get into it, shall we? Uh, question number 1 right here. Why did Jesus condone drinking wine? And what's the difference between drinking alcohol and smoking weed? Now, I if you will look closely at the screen, you will see that I also have another question underneath it because two questions <laughs> pretty much asking the same question. The second question that came in was, "Hello, I was curious as to what the Bible says about cannabis or drug use. I currently work at a dispensary and for most of my friends uh, around the age of 26 and are doing some sort of drug. Is it better to choose a life away from those who use cannabis? What's hard is that I often find myself smoking weed and feeling closer to God as a new Christian. Okay, so both questions are um, about cannabis or, or marijuana use, and I feel that it's important that we answer this question, these questions together because they do apply to the same topic. So let's let's delve into this. What's the difference, first of all, between—well, why did Jesus condone drinking wine? There's no specific reference where Jesus is like, hey, thou shalt drink wine. Um, wine is mentioned throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, several times, several places. Uh, Proverbs talks about it being a mocker. Um, at the same time, Proverbs 31 talks about give it to those who are suffering, uh, who are uh, who are um, not healthy or they're afflicted because it will ease their pain. Uh, so Proverbs says, Wine is a mocker on one end, and then it says, give it to those who are suffering or who are in great uh, pain, which is a proof text for um, anesthesia, if you ask me. Then uh, the New Testament, Jesus drank from wine, uh, the the cup of wine. Jesus turned the water into wine, not grape juice, as a lot of uh, my Pentecostal and independent Baptist friends like to say. (laughs) Um, But wine is specifically to be guarded by those who drink it in the scriptures, You're not to get drunk with wine. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, whereas in excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Titus 2.3, don't let the older women be addicted or slaves to much wine. And then back in the Old Testament, woe to those who rise early that they may run and drink wine. So wine is a hot topic in the scriptures as it is, or alcohol, let's just say alcohol for the sake of argument going forward. As it is to this day. The reason why is because it's got such a tremendous power over our lives. Really, it does. And it's an intoxicant. It will affect your emotions. It will affect your mental capacities. That's why we do not allow and we should not allow drinking and driving or operating machinery. Um, we also see in the scriptures when Daniel was fasting, he ate no delicacies and he and he drank no wine. So while he was a wine drinker beforehand, when he decided to fast for three weeks and pray, he set himself apart from drinking wine. The Nazarite vow was a vow that was not to be that in which a person vowed not to drink wine, and that's exactly what Samson was supposed to do. And then he goes down to the vineyards of Timnah uh, and kind of breaks that vow. But the point is, we don't see. A prohibition against drinking alcohol in the scriptures neither do we see this rampant encouragement of drinking wine in the scriptures and so when it comes to topics such as that we have to use a great amount of discernment and and a great amount of care in using such things so don't (laughs) overdo it obviously and then at the same time don't prohibit it because it's not prohibited specifically in the scriptures when the scriptures describe something is not giving it as a prescriptive for our lives, nor is it giving it as a prohibitive for our lives. So so you'll have a lot of scriptures describing things and talking about what it can or cannot do, such as wine or alcohol, neither of which says it should be taken or should be avoided. You know, there's um, also a, a very relevant principle in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about drinking wine. And if you have a brother who stumbles in that area, don't drink wine around them. So you've got to have a lot of care and concern. This is how you love your brother and you love God. Well, first off, let's back up. You love God by drinking wine with Jesus in mind. Okay. You, you love God by doing all things with him right there. Can you do it with Jesus right here, hanging out with you? So that's a good question for wine drinkers and uh, uh, non-teetotalers out there. But secondly, you love your brother by doing it in ways that don't cause anyone else to stumble. Don't make yourself look like a jerk. Don't make yourself look out of sorts. Uh, don't do things that cause your fellow brothers and sisters who struggled with alcohol in their previous life or even in their Christian life. Don't be don't be a jerk about that. Don't be um, unkind, if you will. Now, what's the difference between alcohol and drinking wine? There's a load of difference, and it's basically all about the brain. Uh, We're in... Whereas uh, drinking wine or alcohol will affect the brain momentarily, uh, there is a substantial amount of research and evidence that shows that smoking weed or other inhalants uh, makes, and I'm talking about drug inhalants, makes the brain physically change, okay? It physically changes. And that's not a good thing for anybody. Uh, In fact, I'm thinking about a, a USA Today article in 2014 came out about a Harvard study I forget the school. It's not Harvard, and forgive me for forgetting it. The two parts of the brain that you don't want to increase because they make you less motivated and they make you um, mentally ill. And again, I know one of them is the amygdala. I can't remember the other one. These two parts of the brain grow in size physically through prolonged use of marijuana and other inhalant drugs. So, what happens when people smoke weed is they get less motivated and they get mental illness. And this, there's studies to be found about this. Now, the reason why you don't hear about them anymore is because there's a side of politicians who want to, you know, legislate this into uh, into the American world, into the American way of life. They want to tax it. They want to use it uh, as they use many other uh, um, activities that would be not conducive to Christian living uh, for the sake of tax and income. The other side is that. People who are pro marijuana use are saying that no, it's the DEA who doesn't want to lose their authority in this department, uh, promoting these scientific researches being done uh, by these schools. So there's a great amount of politicization, 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 politicization. Sorry, around this issue, and you've got to be aware of that. Fundamentally, the word in the New Testament for drug use is not actually drug use. It's actually sorcery, and it's a pharmakia. We get the word pharmacy from it. The Greek word pharmakia means sorcery, and you have to think about that, and this is this is pretty well known throughout all anthropological studies that whenever there was an inhalant that caused your brain to change in, in tremendous ways, they attributed that to sorcery and seeking the wisdom of the gods, so on and so forth. Now, to the person who works in the dispensary, I would highly advise that you find other work. If you want my advice, I don't think you're sinning by working there. I really don't. I think that you have to make a decision, though, that would be best for you in the long term to say, look, let me not let me not walk in this way. Let me let me get out of this environment because you can't truly grow closer to God as a new Christian and then inhale drugs. I'm sorry. You can't. Uh, that's how I believe. A lot of people want me to hedge on this. It will never happen. Uh, there are definitely research studies out there, and I'm just not a big fan uh, that prove what I'm saying is right, and then I'm not a big fan of you operating your life according to the uh, mystical ways of pagan religions from the ancient world that have translated into the modern age of Uh, 2021. Yeah. And even previous to 2021. So you've got to be very careful about these things. You've got to be very knowledgeable about these things. And I would say if you can't do something with Jesus right here in good conscience, it's probably not good for your faith. Walk away from it. Walk in holiness. Walk in righteousness. Amen. Thank you for the question. Let's get into question number two. I just wanted to ask, what do you do when your spouse says they're saved and does all the right things, does all the right things is in quotes here, if you're just listening to the show, like goes to church every week, tithes, etc., but does not have any kind of relationship with Christ and doesn't seem to care to know more of the word or more about Jesus. How do you bring someone to Christ that claims to know, to already know him? Uh, okay, great question. By the way, if you are not yet chatting, please do chat. we got the screen up there for you where we can interact together. I would appreciate some chatters. Let me know you're watching. <laughs> um but let's get back to the question. And the question is a great one. What do you do when your spouse says they're saved, does all the right things? Well, first off, he's going to church or she, I shouldn't, I shouldn't assume here. He or she is going to church. They're tithing. And then this statement here, but doesn't have any kind of relationship with Christ. Well, I would ask a couple of follow-ups. So this is kind of the, the negative of, a, of an environment like this. Um, what do you mean by that? How do you know that they don't seem to care or don't seem to have a relationship with Christ or care to know more of the word. They're going to church, which means they're getting more of the word. So that's good. Count your blessings there. Uh, They are tithing, which a lot of Christians don't do. (laughs) They're going to church every week, which a lot of Christians don't do. I would suggest, okay, just on the surface level of this question, that you count your blessings. You, You count your blessings that this person that you are married to goes to church every week, tithes. Uh, and is under the word. Be careful, Christians, not to judge the growth of your fellow Christians, the growth rate. Also be careful, and your question brings this to mind, not to judge the outward expression of one's faith uh, too, too stringently. And then by that I mean, you judge a person's outward response to Christ by what you see. And you, and you relate what you see in them to how you respond to Christ. Look, the Lord has, and I have seen this many times, the Lord has a funny way of putting people in marriages together, people who are different than them, in how they respond to the Lord. And I think the Lord does that so that we will have more grace for each other. I think the Lord does that so we will have more kindness and more, you know, just be more accepting overall to each other. Because I think we do far too much uh, fruit inspection in the church. We do far too much fruit inspection. You're not, you're not singing the songs. Why aren't you singing the song? You're not raising your hands. Why aren't you raising the hands during worship? You don't bring your Bible to church. Why don't you bring your Bible to church? You should bring your Bible to the church, by the way. But, um, you know, we do a lot of inspecting of other people's lives. Here's my advice to you. And again, there's not a theological answer here I asked. There's a uh, more of an advice question. My advice to you is pray for them, love them, and serve them. You really can't do much about their life with Christ as much as you can do a lot more about your life with Christ. So live an exemplary life. Live a life that they will look to as, wow, they they really do surrender to the Lord here. And I would, and, and, and if you consider when First Peter tells even wives of unbelieving men to submit to them, to be silent about these matters before them, to have a a, a reverent and pure behavior before them. I mean, he's talking to women who are married to unsaved men, not tithing, not involved in church. And those are his admonitions. Again, first Peter, I think it's chapter three. If he's advising women, To unsaved wives, to unsaved husbands, doing that, then I would suggest you need to do that all the more to a man who is coming to church. Again, I'm assuming that this is a woman asking the question. That shouldn't be the case. I'm sorry, but I would say it even if it's a husband married to a woman who's less interested in the Lord. Husbands love your wives. Do what you're called to do. Don't get so hung up on what they're not doing, what what bar they're not setting in their relationship to the Lord. That would be my advice okay thank you for the question it's a great question and uh, i appreciate it let's go to number three here we go pastor tim can you talk a little bit about baptism specifically as christians do we baptize infants what is the purpose of baptizing a baby i was never baptized as an infant but when i was older maybe 16. I did get baptized in a Christian church. Should I get baptized again as an adult? Thank you. Okay, well, thank you for this question. And I have uh, been waiting for this one. Baptism of infants versus baptism of adults. Uh, Okay, I will tell you why I am a adult confessing baptizer only. And that is because it is entirely biblical. There is not one experience. Evidence in the text, and I'm talking about clearly in the biblical text of the New Testament, wherein an infant, unbeknownst to them, is baptized. Okay, so we don't, in our tradition, we don't baptize infants. Uh, We there's a lot of theological ties. There's a lot of theological holdovers from the Reformation in the 1500s, from the Catholic doctrines that came with the reformers into lutheranism with the reformers into presbyterianism um and oh there's another one i'm not it's slipping my mind another denomination that still baptizes infants it might be the methodist forgive me if that's not correct no it wouldn't be the methodist that was john wesley anyway there's a lot of holdovers from catholic doctrine in the reformation in some of those older denominations they they like to come around the idea of covenant. So there was the covenant of faith for Abraham and they relate the baptism uh, expression to, of infants to the to the circumcision of children uh, who were first born. But again, even scripture itself says that not all who are Israel are true Israel, meaning that the sign of circumcision is worthless if you don't obey the Lord and believe in him, right? So again, that's why we don't baptize infants because the baptism sometimes no, not, not sometimes, oftentimes becomes a work, a work righteousness endeavor in which, oh, I was baptized as an infant, so therefore I'm good with God forever. In fact, I went to a Catholic funeral once, and the only, the only statement of professing faith that the Catholic priest uh, provided to the congregation for the person lying in the coffin was, he was baptized in the Catholic Church as an infant. Uh, yeah, So what? I had my diapers changed as an infant. You know, I still had to learn how to use the toilet. So spiritually, you have to grow up and come to faith in Christ and be baptized based on the profession of your faith. This is uh, across all the New Testament. Now, the the proof text for the infant baptizers comes from Acts chapter 16. There's two people who are saved. Lydia, it says Lydia and all her household were baptized. And then it says the, the Philippian jailer, he and all his bapti- family were baptized. But there's there's no mention of infants. There's no mention of babies. Okay, so that you have to read into the text that they both had infants at the time of their baptism and those infants were baptized. It's very possible that both of them had professing, uh, grown-up children, or at least children who could acknowledge who Jesus was and were baptized. You say you were baptized at 16, I would say you are good, okay? Because if you made a profession of faith and you got baptized based on that profession, you do not need to get baptized again. That being said, there is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with getting baptized again. You know, we, we, we don't believe it's a work of salvation. It's a, it's a sign of your belief. It is a confirmation of your belief. And I understand Catholic listeners that confirmation is the fulfillment of the baptismal promise and in the infant life. I understand that but a lot of Catholics don't take that, okay? They don't believe that. Back to my point, if you made a profession of faith and you were baptized, and you want to get baptized again, I have no problem with that because baptism is not a work unto salvation okay you don't undo a baptism by getting baptized again. I personally have been baptized twice. The reason why I was baptized at eleven and then I sinned a lot you yeah. know as everybody does between eleven and twenty five and then I still sinned and uh then I didn't get rebaptized because of that I got rebaptized because I visited the promise the holy the holy Land in 2020, 2018 and it was the Jordan River I mean you gotta do it so there's no sin in getting rebaptized, but I would definitely tell you, you are fine if you were made a profession of faith and then were baptized. Hope that answers the question fully. Thank you for it. God bless you. Question number four, and thanks for the chat. I see it loading up, everybody. Question number four Last question on Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When he saluted Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, I don't know why I said it like that, but <laughs> just force to have it. So as not to draw attention to how he stood amongst those around him, is it okay to pretend to be for the enemy temporarily? I think of the fiery furnace Bible reference and how the three, that would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wouldn't bend a knee to the golden image, and how many Christians have been martyred for not denying Christ. Okay, so for context listeners, this person has already asked a question about Bonhoeffer. I've recommended that book to you guys many times on the Tim Hatch Live YouTube channel. Get it, read it by Eric Metaxas. It's just called Bonhoeffer. It's a long book, but it's going to bless your life tremendously. There is a moment in that book when Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I believe, and I did not look this up before the show. I should have. I believe he was sitting at a cafe with his friend who was also part of the confessing church that were, or at least the confessing church was starting to get started to oppose Nazism um, based on their treatment of the Jews. Now, Two things about that I believe that They stood up at the cafe At the announcement That the Fuhrer had invaded Poland Correct me if I'm wrong But I think that's when it was So it was very early on In Hitler's military campaigns Very little was known As to what was going on In the concentration camps In fact I don't even think They were Officially started At that moment I think he was just still Putting them in ghettos Um. But So you have to take the contextual information there with great regard. He, he doesn't know the whole story, and no one did, of, of who Hitler was. He just knew that he had to be opposed, and the truth was coming out. Now, your question brings up a very important theme, a very important truth. Christians are operating uh, with the knowledge that they have, not the knowledge that they will have. So everybody's going to make decisions, questionable decisions, around the knowledge that they have, uh strategically as they try to live out their faith with great diligence and in a in a a world where there's always going to be evil there's always going to be evil leaders evil dictators uh evil politicians who are going to ask us to do questionable things we have to make strategic and shrewd decisions based on the knowledge that we have at the moment of the knowledge that we will have someday so it's very easy for us 2021 Christians to go back to 1929 Germany and say, stupid Christians, how dare they? But if we had their contextual information, we would have probably lived very similarly to how they lived. Likewise, and this is why I loved reading Bonhoeffer during lockdown, right now Christians are making a uh, an uninformed choice as to the lockdown measures that were instituted on this country, the mask measures that were instituted, and now the vaccines that are instituted on this country. And Christians are making as informed decisions as they can, and that's why we have to have a lot of grace with Christians who think differently about these matters, while at the same time asking for God to give us wisdom in these in these difficult matters and these questionable decisions. Uh, so the reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, also you should be aware that if you read the first chapter of Daniel, Daniel and those three are schooled in the uh, the uh, sorcery and magician classes of Babylon and they ace the exam. They are like the best of the best. What's the point I'm making? Well, they did make some concessions in Babylon such as taking these classes and being schooled in all the ways of Babylon and adopting Babylonian names. And then when the rubber hit the road, they stood when everybody else bowed. So Christians have to make decisions with the knowledge they have that they don't not that they not that they will have. And secondly, Christians have to make some concessions if we're going to live strategically for Christ. And I would say guard your moments, guard your moments for standing for when it matters the most. In that moment at the cafe, if I remember correctly, it was very early on in the war, and and the and uh, and um, Bonhoeffer stood up and said, "Hail Hitler!" And his friend stood up and said it as it was announced on the radio to the cafe. And I think if he, I remember correctly, he said to his friend, "There will be future moments for standing for truth. This is not one of them." Let's not make a scene here. Let's see if we can get further down the line in the process of opposing this man before we start making a stink in front of everybody. So that's the advice that I have for you. Thank you for the question. I hope that helps. Okay. Number four. That was number four. Number five question. My beautiful six-year-old son has autism. Autism rates in America have skyrocketed, affecting one in 54 children. What should the church do to address the issue of teaching the huge number of atypical minds that won't be able to learn about Jesus in a traditional setting? First off, let me thank you for this question. I really, really appreciate that question. And uh, I'm I'm going to actually do something here. I'm going to hand this question over (laughs) on... Tim Hatch Live to our executive pastor of Next Gen Ministries. His name is Jody at Waters Church, where I pastor up in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. And I want to just let you hear from him because we have autistic children in our ministry and he has an autistic child himself. So watch this.
1: Hey, well, Great question here. But what do we do to minister to kids with autism? Well, as a father of a child with autism who absolutely loves coming to Waters Church, I can tell you that the biggest key to what we do here is a partnership with the parents. We work with them to understand what tools and strategies do you already have in place? What works for you at home? What helps to keep your child on task, focused, interested in subject matter? Is that, is that a token board? Is it a, a reward sheet? What is it that you have in place? What do they do at school? What is it in, in the therapies, the ABA, uh, the early intervention? Any of those things that your child's currently attending and, and being successful in, what strategies can we take from there, move into our environment, and make sure that we use it so that they hear the most important message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're willing to adjust the age groups of kids that maybe they learn at a different level. You've got an eight-year-old child who learns at a six-year-old level. Well, if you as a parent partner with us and tell us that, we can say, well, then let's plug them in with the six-year-olds. Let's get them some one-on-one care. Let's overstaff that room with an extra serve team member so that there's an additional person to help care for your child and ensure that they're hearing not just that Jesus is my best friend, but that Jesus died for your sins. And they're not just hearing that, they're understanding that at their level. Now, sometimes even that can be a little bit intense and a little hard for some kids. And maybe they just, they need a break. We actually have a sensory room where if you just need a time to go take a deep breath, decompress and just readjust yourself because sometimes the kids need that. We give you that opportunity, we give you that room, go in, take a deep breath. Okay, I'm ready. Back in with your peers so that you can continue to hear about what God has done for you and all the kids here at Waters. Now, the most important thing is that we want the kids to know we really, truly care and love each and every one of them. And we want to do everything we can to ensure that they have the most age appropriate level-appropriate experience and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope that answered your question. God bless.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Jody. Uh, that's what I do. I hand over the questions that I don't have all the answers to to people that I do. That's one thing that a church can do is look for answers from people who are in Christ and are already w- wise in Christ in ways that I'm not wise, and that's what I just did right there, and I hope that helps you. I would say uh, pastorally as an uh, overseer of a large church, my admonition to churches right now is, and you said one in 54 in, uh, children now are affected with autism. You say the rates are skyrocketed. They are skyrocketing because it was four years ago, five years ago, they were one in 68. So it's only going up. And my admonition to churches is get on board with this now. When you consider that close to 20% of the world's population is disabled, and that is a statistical fact, 20%, one of five people are disabled in some form, we have to remember that these are not obstacles. These are opportunities. It's opportunities for us to grow as ministers, as leaders, as workers in the kingdom. It's opportunity for Christians to realize how good they have it if they aren't disabled, and to show compassion and care for those who are disabled, and to treat them with equal dignity, respect, and love and to do more for those who have needs, including physical or mental needs. Hope that that answers that question. Thank you for it. It's a fantastic question. Let's check over here in the chat. see. We're about halfway through. Hey, everybody on the chat. Good to see you. Um, I'm going to continue in just a moment. I'm going to set something up for one second, if you would just bear with me there we go now I can oh there we go look at that magic I can scroll now okay hi Elaine hi Brian hi Larissa hi BJ uh floor sorry about the name I just butchered hi George glad to see you guys all here on the show on Thursday glad to be spending your lunch with me I'm sure I'm glad to be spending my lunch with you (laughs) I'm not eating what are you eating let me know in the chat below anyway weird question (laughs) let's continue question number six um Many times that I've tried fasting with prayer, my history of disordered eating inevitably rears its ugly head. I'm so sorry. I feel like a complete failure that I cannot fully focus on God when fasting because the disordered eating thoughts get triggered. What am I doing wrong? Is this just the way the enemy attacks me? It makes me sad to think I can't consistently fast for closeness to God without closing, without my mind starting to focus on my flesh. This is exhausting. Please advise. Okay, let me just read that question a little bit more carefully. I don't do a lot of prep for this show, guys, so you're taking, I'm taking these questions as they come in many times. Anyway, first off, my heart goes out to you, and I would suggest, number one, that you have what everyone has. You have a disordered flesh, okay? The words that you've shown on the screen here are my history of disordered eating. Well, you have a disordered eating because you have a disordered flesh, and as I do, okay? My disorder... Rears this ugly head in a different way than yours does Now yours specifically ties to the area of fasting and prayer And I would suggest that there are many different ways to fast That don't uh, completely cut off eating uh, totally So you can fast delectables Like we just mentioned in Daniel chapter 10 Where Daniel stops eating delectable food Uh, You can fast certain things That might make your eating disorder helped that might that might physically help you, and you can talk to a doctor about that because I am a big fan of doctors and medicine, and we should be as Christians. Uh, so there's a couple of options there. Secondly, I would not beat yourself up for not being able to fast and pray. Fasting is important. It's not essential to the Christian faith. Uh, it is helpful. It is not uh, ultimate as with many things in the Christian faith, that we should do. Like evangelism is is something that we should do, but it's not the ultimate expression of being a Christian. The first commandment is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind strength. So I would say find ways that you can fast or remove some dietary delectables from your life that help you love God. So don't beat yourself up and figure out a way in Part and parcel with your doctor's advice to not exhaust yourself on a spiritual discipline. That that word exhaustion there, when you say this is exhausting, that that grieves me for you because I don't want, and no one should have, the disciplines of the Christian life become exhausting. They should become life-giving, such as reading your scriptures, such as prayer, devotion to a, scrip- a, 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 a scripture-based Bible-loving community of faith, a small group attendance. These things should provide Life to you, not rip life from you. So I don't think it's the way the enemy attacks you. I think it's their disordered physical condition because of this disordered flesh. And then you can talk to your doctor and find out. Follow up with us, by the way. Let me know if that helps and what you found out from your doctor, because I'd love to see you find some some help here and some healing and some you know wisdom in the medical world as well as the spiritual world and how you can... Devote yourself to God uh, Through a fast that is not As you say, exhausting Thank you for the question Let's get to the next question Number seven Whoa, it's going quick today I might get that bonus question in today My question is How do you feel about believers Watching horror or thriller movies? Okay, well And this is Kelly Carlson A big-time deep deepender Thank you for the question, Kelly I am of the opinion That horror movies are horrible <laughs> For Christians I do I Again, I don't want to call them sinful, but I just, I, I've, I've saw, I've seen some of these movies. They are disgusting. Why do we want to set vile things before our eyes in the name of entertainment? Now, I've had some Christians who had no problem watching horror movies when they were young Christians, and they grew in the faith and they realized this is not good for my spirit. Uh, so, my feeling. Or let me not say feeling. My advice is if they're young believers, grace, if they're seasoned believers, you know, maybe advise them, maybe talk, maybe have a conversation with them. Uh, I'm wondering if you're asking this for yourself. You can let me know in the chat below. But. I don't. I don't think a horror movie is appropriate. Now, a thriller movie is different than a horror movie. It really is. I mean, the Sixth Sense is a thriller movie, and I I loved that movie. I had no problem watching it. It was scary. Uh, same thing with Stranger Things. It's thriller. It's not horror. When 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 I think of horror, I think of you literally see somebody getting, you know, peeled apart, ripped apart, and you see the you see the blood and the flesh. And we all know it's fake, of course, but it's just. Do we need that before our eyes? I don't think that helps us. I think it also robs the uh, human race of a sense of dignity over the human person. And uh, I would just suggest one last thing to kind of, I'm kind of straddling the fence here with this question by going to this end now. Remember that there's a lot of horror in the Bible. It, It just, it was written down. It wasn't visualized. So they didn't have film in the ancient world. They had writing. And when you think about Judges chapter 19, I mean, just go read that chapter and see how that will bless your heart. Uh, as the as the man takes his concubine who had been raped by several men all night long, and he takes his dead concubine, chops her up in 12 pieces, and ships her pieces of her body to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, that's horror, and yet it's clearly on the pages of Scripture. But that is also an instructive text for us to understand that the culmination of the theme of Judges, which is, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. The culmination of that philosophy of life is the absolute degradation of life to the extent that a man takes his concubine, hands her over to a bunch of rapists for the night to save his own skin, and then chops up her body, her dead body, and ships it off to the 12 12 tribes of Israel, causing a civil war. Uh, That's the, the instructive nature of that text. Horror movies today have no instructive nature. They're just there to... I, oftentimes, they're just there to gross you out more than the last one. This is also my problem with a lot of Christian, not Christian, sorry, uh, secular music, top forty music. It, it's it's the it's the how can we go further and weirder and grosser than the guy or the girl before us, right? So you know, you had Madonna dancing at the MTV Music Awards in a in a wedding dress, singing like a virgin. I think that was in 1985. That is tame. That's like G rated. Compared to what you see in the modern, uh, more recent video music award expressions, I mean, it, it just seems that we are, what we see in the world is this constant pursuit of what Paul talks about men going from bad to worse, okay, because they are lost, they are in darkness. And when you are going to lost and dark people for your entertainment options, ladies and gentlemen, please carry with you. A wheelbarrow full of discernment because you need you need to carefully guard your spirit, your mind, and your heart. And a lot of this is beyond the pale and unnecessary and detrimental to your spirit person, right? You know, I want to guard this. When, when the scripture says, you know, guard your faith and your doctrine, Paul says it to Timothy. The word guard was the word that God used for Adam and Eve in the garden. Guard it. Keep it. Make sure that the time with me is protected. Make sure your life with me is protected. And I would, ad- I would admonish every Christian to consider, to filter their entertainment options through that lens of, is this helping me guard my intimacy with the Lord, or is this actually exposing that intimacy to deterioration? And you want to be careful about that. You want to be diligent in those matters because you only have you only have one heart. You only have one spirit man, person, and you want to guard that. So that's my thoughts. I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Question number eight. You spoke about predestination last week or two weeks ago and backed it up with numerous scriptures. Is praying for the salvation of loved ones biblical if God has predetermined who or whom he will save? Thank you, Sue Cabreras, uh, also a dedicated deep ender for that question. Cabreras, sorry, Sue Cabreras. <laughs> My bad. So predestination is oftentimes vilified by Arminians and uh, non-predestinationists non-predestination, because it's an excuse to be lazy. And I would challenge that notion into a scripturally and historically First, scripturally, the person, you know, the writer of the Bible from whom we get predestination most clearly enunciated is the Apostle Paul. And if you explore the Apostle Paul's life, he basically takes over the book of Acts. He basically takes over the narrative in Acts chapter 13, and he never lets it go. Like you you have Peter on the day of Pentecost. You have Peter on chapter four. You have Philip in chapter eight. I'm sorry, Stephen in chapter 7, Philip in chapter 8, Peter in chapter 10, and then Paul and Barnabas from then on. And this man who gave us scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referring to predestination, God's electing the saved uh, through no work of their own, this man traveled over land and sea, suffered, was tortured, was beaten, was imprisoned, and never lost his enthusiasm to win people to Christ at any cost. So if you want to claim that predestination means now we get to be lazy because God's just going to elect to salvation, then you haven't actually read the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God reveals that those who are most dedicated to understanding that God is electing some to salvation are also the most dedicated in many respects to bring the gospel to the nations. And that is true in the historical nature of the church. Jonathan Edwards believed in uh, predestination and, and biblical, <laughs> biblical doctrine and spread the message of Christ to the Native Americans and beyond. Uh, uh, George Whitfield traveled over the Atlantic Ocean in the 1800s to bring the gospel to America and, or 1700s, I'm forgetting what his century was. And you have untold number of missionaries out on the fields right now in foreign lands doing whatever they can to bring this message to those who are saved. And I say all that to say this, is praying for someone to get saved, helping them get saved? Absolutely, because it is God who saves. It is God who saves. If God is the one who saves, then it is 100% appropriate to pray fervently for their salvation because your faith is not in their heart being changed. Your faith is in the power of God and his gospel to change their hearts. Does that, I hope that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. I think that the gospel of not the gospel, sorry, the doctrine of predestination or election does not undercut my efforts or my prayers for people to get saved. It actually, it actually fuels them because now I know, okay, think about this from my perspective. I'm a, I'm a gospel preacher. I preach every week and now the, the burden is off of my shoulders to do the convincing that Jesus is the way the truth and the life. The the burden on my shoulders is just to make it clear that Jesus is the way the truth and life. Just the burden is on just the presenting because God does the saving. And if the word of the cross is preached, the power of God is present to save and open the heart and pierce and cut to the heart as it does in the days of of Peter in the day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart. Well, why? Because he preached Christ and him crucified. Why Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.18, uh, we we resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, that the power of the cross might not be voided of its power. That you have to understand that when we just tell people who this Jesus is and what he has done, that the Lord goes to work in that and uh, and you're praying for people to get saved and you're ministering to people for they, that they might get saved is not not. Diminished in effort, I believe it is fueled in effort because you are that confident, right? You're that confident that God is going to save. And so, yes, pray and pray hard for people who you know, especially loved ones, to get saved because God will save. Amen. Okay, thank you for the question. Uh, Question number nine, cooking right through these. Uh, In all seriousness, could pedophilia be evidence of demonic possession? Do we believe that possibly? This is a great question, and thank you for it. Uh, I think this person did not ask it anonymously. I think this was Ken, Ken A., one of our deep enders. Thank you for the question, Ken. Uh, let's, get on, let's get into this a little bit deeper than just the simple idea that someone who does a very horrible thing, a very wicked thing, such as pedophilia, is demon-possessed. Demons are fallen spirits. There's a debate as to whether they are fallen angels or they are fallen members of the council of God. I'm actually reading a book by Michael Heiser right now about this. It's called this The Unseen Realm. And pretty soon, coming to the deep end, I will be doing a book review on that book, but it's very long, so give me time. And he makes a very strong biblical case that I had heard before, but I liked his presentation of it, that the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 and the Anak- Anakim, who are descendants of the Nephilim in Numbers 13 were members of the council of the gods, okay, uh, with Yahweh, with God, the Almighty, in heaven, uh, who took on human flesh, became humans, intermarried with uh, uh, beautiful females, as Genesis chapter 6 talks about, they took as many of the daughters of men as they wanted, and then they created the men of renown, the giants, the Nephilim, the, the giants of old. And then, even post flood, they did it again because you, you have the Anakim, the descendants of Nephilim, again after God had wiped out the earth in Genesis chapter 7 and 8 through the flood. So, you have this strong biblical case that demons are the spiritual offspring of these people who had died. because of the uh, natural offspring of the fallen gods or angels, if you will, and the daughters of men. Now that's a big, deep discussion for a very simple question. My point being is this, every sin is rooted in rebellion against God and the original rebeller, the, the original rebellion rebel is Lucifer who was in the council of the gods as one of the archangels. So all sin and i i say this carefully as a pastor all sin opens the door to demonic activity in our lives because demons are following their leader lucifer in rebellion against god and sin itself is rebellion against god so are they demon, demon possessed i would say they are definitely demonically influenced as all sinners are and that uh you have to be very careful as to who you relegate to the confines of demon possession because it tends to absolve those who sin in lesser ways look my big pastoral concern here is i don't want you opening your life to demonic activity no one no christian should want that and i think that we oftentimes overlook the sins in our lives because we don't see it as rebellious in nature as it really is so you, you, have, you have this stern call in the scriptures to repent, to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, to flee the youthful desires of lust, to um, walk away and come out of the, the, the pagan idolatrous city of Babylon, right? In, in, in Revelation, you have this constant, incessant, strong appeal throughout the New Testament to, do, to not open your lives at all to sinful behavior. Do we still sin as Christians? Yes, but opening our lives to repeated sinful behavior is the number one way to get in, to allow demons to have influence and affect in your life. And nobody, I don't want that for you. You shouldn't want that for you. And so while I wouldn't say that all pedophiles are demon-possessed, I would say that they have a heavy dose of demonic activity in their lives because harming a child absolutely is far worse okay, than stealing. It is. It is far worse than committing adultery with a consenting adult. It is far worse. People say, oh, all sins are the same. That is absolute baloney. That is absolute. And even Jesus himself acknowledged that if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and you be cast into the sea So Jesus reserved the harshest condemnation for those who would harm children spiritually and emotionally and physically. So you've got to, um, I would say in that sense, pedophiles or pedophilic activity is far more demonically oriented than, hey, you're stealing bread from the store or you're doing something such as, you know, whatever, something far less grievous. To the heart of God. Okay. That's my long answer to a very short question. I hope it helps. <laughs> okay. Let's go to the next one. Question number 10, and it looks like we might have time for the bonus question. Pastor, is there anything in the Bible about what age a child is responsible in God's eyes for their salvation? I was talking to someone about a 15 year old who refuses to want or learn about salvation or go to church. And I thought to myself, does God give grace for a teenager until they get uh, get older? Well, I would say, and, and this is going to really kind of undercut the question. God gives grace to anyone who isn't currently dead to come to Christ, right? Hebrews, today is the day of salvation. Uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Um, Now is the acceptable year of the Lord's favor, Luke chapter 4. We've got to realize that we are in age of grace right now. So does God give grace for teenagers Yes, does God give grace to 20-year-olds who are messing around with drugs and sex and alcohol? Yes, does God give grace to 50-year-olds who have been you know, willfully sinning for 50-plus years? Yes. Where sin abounds, there grace abounds all the more. Now, to your question of is there a number, we always want this. It's called the quote-unquote age of accountability, and I put that in air quotes because it's not found in the Bible. There is no biblical proof text for an age of accountability. Now, I have heard some options provided for provided by theologians that they take the temple tax age which is 20 in the old testament so when you're 20 years old you had to pay the temple tax which is an atonement tax for your for your life before the lord and you had to give that to the temple once you turned 20 and every year after 20 if i remember correctly so i've heard some theologians offer well there you go there's the age of accountability because that's when you start paying the temple tax so 20 the problem is is that that's not actually a good proof text for that for that expression um, w- there's no New Testament corollary to that idea and we have to be careful as to what we allow to come through the cross into the New Testament concerning the civil and sacramental laws of Israel okay so we we don't practice the Leverite marriage right the Levite marriage what was that if you have a a brother, and he dies, but he was married to this woman, and you're married to a different woman, and your brother dies, and there's no children. Now, you've got to also marry your brother's widow and produce children for your brother in his name. That's called leveret marriage. It's uh, all over the Old Testament. It is not; It does not come through to the New Testament, right? It stops at the cross because it's also a picture of who we are. We are the widowed woman wh- whose husband left us childless and barren, and Jesus is our our leveret uh, uh, kinsman redeemer who comes and marries us and produces offspring through us, So there are things in the old Testament at point to Christ that don't, don't come through the cross into the new Testament expression or doctrine. This is one of them. There is no stated age of accountability in the new Testament. That is why I answer to you. And anyone who is not presently dead is experiencing the grace of God in uh, even if they're saved, <laughs> but especially if they're not saved. So the 15-year-old who refuses to want to learn about salvation, I would pray for them, like I had just answered before about praying for those who were to get saved. Um, and, oh, we had the follow-up question in the chat because I know this was from Deb. Thanks, Deb, for the question. Let me let me answer this follow-up. My question was more if that child died, will that child or will that teenager go to heaven? Oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah, let me answer that question by saying that the Lord knows the hearts of every person. We, you know, There's a lot to be said about how would the child die? Would they be in an accident, in a coma? Would they be able to hear or respond to someone presenting the gospel on the edge of death? You, know, you never know. Secondly, what does the child know? What can they deny or confess? Uh, so what's the level of knowledge in that child's life? Have they heard the gospel? Are they able to articulate it and then thereby willfully reject it? The Lord will definitely hold them accountable. Uh, And then again, remember that every person is different, and this is biblical, right? There's different gifts, there's different um, abilities, there's different talents in the parables of the Lord that are given to each person, and every person is accountable for what they know and what they have received. That's why Jesus will say, to whom much is given, much is required, because you're accountable to what you have. That includes knowledge. So every person is accountable for the knowledge that they have, not the knowledge that they don't have. And the Lord is the perfect judge, the righteous judge of all the earth who does not, who does not let the righteous suffer the condemnation of the wicked. And we put our faith fully in, in his knowledge of our hearts. Uh, and I would absolutely 100% resist giving an age of accountability because it's not in the Bible. Because it's not in the Bible, I have an I have a responsibility to tell you what's in the scriptures, and it's not there. So I hope that helps, and I thank you for your question, Deb, uh, on the chat. And it looks like it did help because she just said yes. Thank you. You're welcome, Deb. God bless you. Um, let's just go through the chat real quick because we're going to get to the uh, we're going to get to a bonus question, ladies and gentlemen. The bonus question because we have six minutes remaining. Wow, I'm getting I'm getting shorter. Something's wrong with me today. I don't know. Did I have too much coffee? I don't know. Whoa, talking about. Oh wait, let me go back up here. Major floor. Do you believe that God has created a specific life partner for each of us? If so, how do we know? No, I don't. I'm going to answer this one quickly because the idea of a soulmate comes from Greek mythology. Uh, Greek mythology believed that every one of us was eternally present before we were born. Uh, we were we were two halves that had been a whole in the previous age or whatever. Then then Zeus took. The um the the bodies of those people dis- divided them male and female and sent them onto the earth to go and find each other. The idea of a soulmate is Greek mythology, not Christian theology. <laughs> that is important. I wanted to answer that question. I saw it in the chat. I wanted to answer the question because because recently Joshua Harris, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, denied all that he wrote in that book, then denied the faith, then divorced his wife, and now is championing all kinds of immorality all around the world and living it up. Okay, why do I bring him up? Because that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, ca- caused an entire generation of teenagers to wait for the perfect p- Christian spouse, and no one was good enough. And and then they got into their 20s and 30s, and before they knew it, they were they were much older, and they wasted— 10, 20 years of their lives waiting for the perfect Christian relationship. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. And we do a disservice to our young when we put this burden on them to say, you've got to find that one person, that specific life partner. What we do is we we set the bar at the level that the Bible does. Okay, so do not be unequally yoked. They have to have a profession of faith, a a fruitfulness to their lives. The fruits of the Spirit should be born out in their lives. They should be loving the Lord without loving you. Do they go to church? Do they express the faith? Do they want to grow in Christ? These are the things that you measure a potential spouse by, not by the elements or the doctrines of a pagan religion. I hope that helps. And thank you for the question. And thank you guys for the chat. I really love chatting with you guys on Thursday. That's what this more relaxed atmosphere is. And um, I appreciate it. Okay, we're going to get to a bonus question, and then maybe we'll get back to you, Philip. Hold on. Here's a bonus question because so many questions came in, and we do have time for them. Number 11, if you are asleep and dream about things that clearly are jacked up, (laughs) I like that, that clearly are jacked up and missing the mark, are you sinning? Can you sin unconsciously? No, you cannot sin unconsciously, but you do have an unconscious sin nature that is always working to undermine your Christian faith. Paul talks about this as the flesh. This is why Paul will say, I do not understand what I do. I have this very unconscious activity, right? I have this very unwillful yet willful p- propensity to sin and rebel against the Savior that I love. Okay, the, the great hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There is this battle within because sin, as I say often on the deep end, sin is not something you do before it is something you are. It is an ontological experience. It is part of your being, which is why uh, David will say, and Paul will uh, repeat in the New Testament, that we are to be cleansed from our sins. No, he doesn't say stop sinning. He says, repent and turn to the one who will bring refreshment to your soul. New Testament. Uh, David in Psalm 51, when he repents about his actions towards Bathsheba and Uriah, what does he say in that Psalm so beautifully? Wash me, cleanse me, created me a clean heart. I was, I was born in iniquity. And he, and he goes on and on in that, in that chapter. I challenge you to read it because he's talking about that inward person that's already, as in your words, jacked up and missing the mark. It is a, sin's a condition before it is an action. And so if you dream sinfully, it's because that condition is there. At the same time, guard what you put into your mind and into your spirit before you go to bed. You know, the word of God is life and peace. It brings peace to your heart, and brings peace to your mind. So the scripture says in, in Isaiah 26, uh, you will set in perfect peace him whose mind is set on you. So are you setting your mind on the Lord that you might receive the peace of God in your sleep. And I would say, if that's you and you're having this repeatedly happen to you, why don't you spend some time with the Lord and his word right before you go to bed? Pray, get on your knees, ask God for peaceful sleep and good dreams. And I would say, uh, you don't have to feel guilty about sinning in your sleep. That's, not, that's just another sign that you are um, a human. You are of, of the flesh, just as we all are. And yet we are seeking the wisdom, the counsel, the washing, the cleansing of God Almighty, and will one day realize and experience the removal of sin ontologically from our bodies at the last day? Thank you for the question. So what do we got? We got one minute and 15 seconds for the Last question on the chat. And the reason why I'm going so long today on the questions and I'm going to get them all in as, I, as much as I can is because, because you're not going to see me on the questions for a couple of weeks. The next one is going to be August 12th, uh, I think, or August 19th. Anyway, Philip Peterson, what advice do you have for someone who is a new Christian that is a child who was born before getting saved with their fiancé and the fiancé is an unbeliever? What advice do you have for someone who is a new Christian that has a child who was born before getting saved with their fiancé, and fiancé is an unbeliever. This is what I get for asking for one last question. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm not hearing the question, Oh, but is coming to church. So if I'm reading the question correctly, Philip, you're asking me, you had a child before getting saved? Please please comment below. You had the child or the fiancé had the child uh, before getting saved? I'm going to say you had, all right, you're a new Christian. You have the child and the, and the child was born before you became a Christian. That's how I'm reading your question with the fiance and the fiance is an unbeliever. Okay. If your fiance is an unbeliever, you should not get married. That's what I would say. Unless you've had the child with the unbeliever, in which case it's better to get married and i would say you know we have to in this case you have to pick the lesser of two evils if you have already had a child with a unbeliever get married for the sake of the child i believe that your and paul talks about this in first corinthians your salvation brings sanctification to that home it doesn't mean that everybody on your house is saved but it does mean that there is a sanctifying influence through your faith upon the child and upon your spouse Secondly, if you are engaged and this person is an unbeliever and you already had a child with them, get married quickly. That's my advice to you because you cannot continue uh, sleeping together without being married, and you must set an example for that child uh, as soon as possible. Wow, that's what I get for taking one last question. I'm sorry, Philip. I don't mean to disrespect you. I thank you for the question. My final advice to you is... If you are a member of our church, Waters Church, uh, get in touch with us, info at waterschurch.org, and we'd love to give you some more in-person, godly counsel around this. And I'd rather approach that conversation with you with a lot more details uh, through one of our elders. I wouldn't be doing it be one of our elders or our pastoral care director. Thank you for the question. If you don't come to Waters Church, please feel free to... uh, Email info at timhatchlive.com with more information. I'll answer that question as best I can. Anyway, thanks, guys. I'm glad you were here. It has been a blessing once again to be with all of you on 10 Questions with Tim. It will happen again on August 12th. I look forward to seeing you then. And God bless. Enjoy summer. Get out there. Enjoy the weather. Take care.